Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast, the podcast dedicated to simplifying the commercial real estate industry for the masses. Each week, we sit down with industry experts to dissect the many facets of commercial real estate and extract valuable lessons you can apply to your business. Whether you're a new or seasoned business owner or investor, the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast will be your go-to resource for all your commercial real estate needs. Now, here are your hosts, Rafael Collazo and Jeff Walston. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Collazo, here with my co-host, Jeff Walston. How's it going, my friend? It's going great today. I'm glad it's uh, sunny out today. How about yourself? Yeah, same. I'm looking forward to getting outside, take advantage of the outdoors later on today, and maybe go grab a beer on an outdoor patio or something like that. So uh, really t- looking go. forward. And I'm, this summertime is my favorite time of the year. So I try to get outside as much as I can and avoid being in, indoors all day. Yeah. And speaking of taking advantage, I know that you guys out there who are interested in investing in real estate, there's one aspect that Dave Menz, he is the millionaire laundromat guy. He wrote a book about it. This guy is a wealth of knowledge from investing into laundromats, what it takes for like what are the upfront costs from all the due diligent items that you must take in order to even buy a laundromat. So there's a lot of great value that he gives to anyone interested in laundromats. Like I said, he's just very, very, very passionate about laundromats in general. And uh, he has a great, great story about how he got started. And uh, I'm excited for you guys to hear everything. So do you have any more things to add, Raphael? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dave, like I said, is an impressive guy. And he's actually not too far away from us here in Cincinnati. And uh, like I said, he does have a great origin story. And he talks about what got him interested in laundromats in the first place. And you know, the, some of the due diligence items that you need to take into consideration as you're looking to invest in, in laundromats. And because the laundromat industry is is still fragmented, there's a lot of mom and pop operators out there. So there is a lot of opportunity for those individuals who are very entrepreneurial to come in, buy a, a failing laundromat or a laundromat that's underperforming, and then turn around the business model such that you do make it, you produce a, a great business that can generate income. And then also on the real estate end, if you're looking to buy uh, a building that before that was a laundromat, it also could present a unique opportunity for you to both own the real estate and have the business in the location. So I, I thought it was a phenomenal conversation we had with Dave and he really did provide a lot of value in this episode. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right in. Well, hey, Dave, great to see you. Glad we were able to get connected via LinkedIn and offline. We were just talking about one of our friends, uh, Jordan Barry, who was also in the laundromat business. So it was great to kind of catch up on that front. So welcome, Dave. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Jordan's one of my good friends. Uh, you won't find better company than him for sure. He's a solid guy. And as I yeah. mentioned to Dave, we had Jordan on one of our uh, Louisville real estate investor meetup groups, one of the meetups that I, I run. So he's, he's a wealth of knowledge. He provided a wealth of knowledge and it was a lot of, uh, we got a lot of benefit from his, his talking, but as far as just diving into the episode, uh, one of the things we wanted to ask pretty much everyone who comes on the podcast is tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you into the business? I believe I was born an entrepreneur. Uh, from a very young age, I always wanted to own my own business. I've been fascinated by everything that is business. Um, and from a very, as, as far back as I can remember, I just wanted to own my own business. But everybody always asks me when I tell them that, what, what type of business do you want to own someday? And the answer was, it doesn't matter. I was, I love business, like the fascinated by different business models and the revenues and 
and the servitude associated with capitalism and things like that. And I just love everything that is business. Long story short, I ended up going down the path of corporate America as a young adult right out of high school. Uh, started at an entry-level position in corporate America, uh, worked my way up over 12 or 13 years and uh, realized that I had sold myself short and that I should have chased my entrepreneurial dream. And I you know, was in my, I guess, late 20s, early 30s at that point, and I realized I still had time to do that. And so I just pivoted and uh, started looking, you know, saving up for a business, eventually purchased a local laundromat a couple miles from my home, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a leap of faith too. And I know a lot of yeah. people that I've that I've dealt with. Obviously, I I came from corporate America as well, and then transitioned okay. into commercial real estate. I'm actually a commercial real estate agent, but I definitely had that same type of epiphany uh, right around this 25, 26 time frame of understanding that you know I was I knew that I loved business and entrepreneurship, and I loved dealing with numbers and trying to fit myself in a position that could benefit the skill sets that I have. Uh, was something that I started thinking about at that age and obviously making that transition in my late 20s, similar to you. Uh, again, I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I'm sure for you, it was the exact same way. So, Absolutely. No doubt about it. I'm, I'm literally living my dream and I realize not too many people have the dream of building a mini laundromat empire and uh, that's okay. But I am absolutely living my dream, which is why I enjoy having conversations like this with you all. Well, I can come along with the same boat with that as... Uh... I started at a very young age and wanted to own my own business. Started at 16 and 20 years later, here we are and still going. But I implore you for following something that you enjoy doing because I love uh, conversing with people who are passionate about their business. So, Sure. Well, likewise. I'm yeah. excited to be here today. I, I could do this all day, every day. I yeah. absolutely could. <laughs> Unfortunately, we got to work at some point, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, you gave us a little about, about yourself, but what really piqued your interest in investing for a laundromat? So, I mean, you, you were you walking around one day and you looked in and said, you know what? I see all that cash money going into those machines. Is that is that something I want to get into or what piqued your interest? Unfortunately, the story isn't anywhere near that sexy. No. Uh, the first laundromat <laughs> that I bought was a couple miles from my house in a community I've grown up since, uh, since I was probably 10 or 11 years old. Uh, but the unsexy portion of the business is that when I bought this business, it was losing money. Not too many people, <laughs> yeah. not too many people are willing to buy businesses that are losing money, but I've always been kind of a visionary type of my mindset. Um, and I always, I always see potential in what they call value add in the real estate industry. And I saw that in this location, I saw it in the opportunity to serve my community that I had grown up in. And so that was really what got my attention was a chance to take a community eyesore and turn it into a community asset. And that's something that I get a lot of satisfaction out of. And obviously, I believed if I did that, that the money would follow. Um, and that and that did happen. Um, but yeah, it was <laughs> the main reason I got into the laundromat industry is I was working in corporate America. Me and my wife had live below our means. And we had saved up, you know, a little bit of seed money, $25,000, $30,000 over many years, four or five years um, for a business, but we didn't know what we were going to buy or what it would look like. Um, but I knew $25,000, $30,000 was not enough probably because I had a pretty good job. Uh, wasn't enough probably for me to just buy a business and quit my job and jump right into it full time. So I was really looking for something that was uh, able to be run at least temporarily as kind of a side hustle. And I was willing to work, you know, anytime I wasn't in my job, I was willing to sacrifice my lifestyle and my free time and all those things as a temporary means to an end. And so the, the reality is there just aren't a lot of businesses out there where you can do that. 
and maintain a full-time job. I had a one-hour commute each direction to my job, which meant if I worked eight hours a day, it took 10 hours a day <laughs> to get yeah. to and from work. And so I was really attracted to the laundromat business for those reasons. And I was really attracted to this specific location because it was literally two miles from my home. And I just thought, well, I mean, if nothing else, I'm not going to have a lot of free time, but at least I won't be spending even more time um, in the car commuting. And when there are issues with customers and things like that, I'm literally three minutes away. And so the thought process really didn't go beyond that, just servitude to the community, the opportunity, the geography close to my home. And I just, you know, I took a leap of faith. I mean, I did my due diligence. I looked into other laundromats in the area. I think I looked at nine or 10 laundromats within a 20 mile radius of my home. And every one of them were in pretty close to as poor of a shape as this one. And so, you know, I just saw it as like, well, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but it seems like the laws of supply and demand are kind of tipped in my favor here. And if I fix this up and make it nice, which is, you know, I only, only know how to do things one way and it's the best way I can find out <laughs> the best way I can learn. Yeah. Um, so I knew as I learned the industry and dug in and networked and things like that, that I would, I would learn the little idiosyncrasies of the business, the art of the business. I knew I wanted to fix it up and make it really nice. And I believe that the, you know, if I serve the community, the revenue would follow. And that's, that's what happened. And I kind of, I tell people I caught the bug, <laughs> you know, once, once it turned around and the community was just eternally grateful, I single moms coming up to me with tears in their eyes and um, I would raise my prices and they wouldn't even blink an eye because they were just so eternally grateful um, for what we had done. And they knew we had invested a lot of money. They didn't know we had borrowed a lot of that money, uh, yeah. but they did know we had invested a lot. And so that was, that was really what attracted me to the industry was it's kind of a unique business in a sense of it's very flexible. There aren't a lot of businesses out there that are flexible. You know, a lot of people refer to the laundromat industry as passive or semi-passive and it's certainly not passive. That's just a lie. Um, it can be semi-passive depending on your definition, but I prefer the definition of flexible. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things in our business that needs to be done, but the good news about it is we as laundromat owners, for the most part, get to kind of choose when we do those things. And that, that was right in my wheelhouse of my, my job I had wasn't flexible at all. It was your traditional nine to five Monday through Friday. And I even had emergency call outs and things like that. Um, I was a lineman for the local telephone company. So, I mean, when we had emergencies, like I had to go <laughs> and yeah. uh, it wasn't a very, you know, I couldn't just, I couldn't just work five hours and take off three hours at the end of the day. I mean, I was hanging off of a telephone pole. So it just wasn't the most flexible job in the world. And I knew that I knew I needed something that was flexible and that, that fit right in that wheelhouse. Definitely. No. And, and I think, it's a unique business itself too, because it kind of lends itself as well to the commercial real estate business. Because again, a lot of times the shell itself is a, a piece of commercial real estate. So whether you lease a space within that building or you own the real estate outright, you can benefit from just utilizing that space. And I really appreciate what you said about adaptive, adaptive reuse, essentially. Like you, you went into a building, beautified it, and all the neighbors, people in that area that utilize that space got some value from it. And I know later in this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about ways you could add value to the laundromat business. But uh, obviously, that's that's a very unique thing that you you just mentioned right there. So I wanted people, the listeners to take notice of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I tell people when it comes to the commercial real estate side of the game is um, I believe laundromats are one of the best commercial tenants in the country, especially for retail space, obviously, because the reality is we're an anchor tenant. If somebody builds a modernized laundromat in a white box space, um, that there's a there's a pretty high likelihood that that space will always be a laundromat. 
Now, if you put somebody in there who's not going to run it properly, they can be a nightmare tenant. So, I mean, it's the other side of the equation, right? Mm-hmm. But this is all kind of predicated on the fact that they run a laundromat at what I call the top of the industry, a modernized laundromat. And a lot of people don't know those exist out there. They have a negative connotation associated with the word laundromat, rightfully so. Our industry has earned that, <laughs> unfortunately, because uh, there's a ro- lot of rundown, dumpy laundromats out there. But the reality is when you when you put a modernized laundromats in a commercial space, you're not going to find a better long-term tenant because um, all the infrastructure, the build out, all of that stuff is easily six figures, easily multiple six figures in a lot of cases. And once you invest that kind of infrastructure in the property, which is what you're doing as a laundromat owner, and you can't take it with you, you know, you can take the equipment with you, which isn't even really easy in and of itself. Cause this is big commercial laundry equipment. It's bolted down to the floor. This isn't the stereotypical top load washing machine from back in 1985 that just sat on the floor and had a little coin mech on top of it. That's not what the industry is today. And so as you know, your audience is obviously primarily commercial uh, property owners, I would assume. The reality is if you get an opportunity to put a modernized laundromat in a commercial space, there's really not a better opportunity out there. Just make sure you do your homework and make sure they're going to be a good operator. And if you put them in there, you're basically going to have a guaranteed tenant forever, (laughs) you know, hypothetically. Um, And that's something that a lot of people don't realize. They don't realize the value proposition for the property owner associated with somebody like me that operates at the top of the industry, putting a uh, modernized laundromat in that space. And then you touched on it. The flip side of that is, you know, in my case, I own a couple of properties that my stores are in. And uh, so I get to kind of have my cake and eat it too. (laughs) You know, I know I'm going to, I don't have to factor in, uh, you know, vacancy. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm going to pay myself. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's really a fantastic investment for a property owner, whether you operate the laundromat yourself or, uh, you bring in an, an experienced operator to do it for you. It's a fantastic opportunity. For sure. So you, you touched that on, on that a little bit during that discussion, which is related to the upfront, upfront costs associated with starting up a laundromat. Could you kind of elaborate a little bit on that? Cause I'm sure a lot of the listeners are probably curious about that. Yeah, it's a very, very capital intensive business. But uh, once that space is built out into a laundromat, like I said, you can't really move it. It's not very economically feasible. <laughs> you can physically do it. Um, you know, whether it's the uh, the water sewer tap-in fees, which depending on the municipality can, as crazy as it sounds, the tap-in fees alone can be six figures sometimes. That's usually not a viable project, but they can run that high. But on the low end, just the right to tap into the water and sewer can easily run twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars And then when you start building out things like the gas service for, you know, natural grass dryers, I mean, a lot of times you're having to put a one and a half, two inch, three inch, sometimes four inch gas line into that space. And so it's, you know, not too many commercial properties have that built out already in there. And so it's, it's a significant investment to do that. You know, the sewers, uh, the drainage system associated with it almost always requires either a four or six inch drain. And you're having to cut the floor and run those drains to very specific locations to feed uh, the bulkheads, you know, and the plumbing associated with it and the water lines. Most laundromats, unless they're really small, are going to require a two-inch water line, which is substantial <laughs> compared to most businesses. And once again, once once a property owner makes those types of investments just in the infrastructure, I mean, we're not talking about lights or tile floors or bathrooms or anything else. Where I'm just talking about getting the access to those spaces or that size of utilities. The electric is the same thing. It's not quite as substantial, but it's pretty common for laundromats to be using multiple, you know, three-phase panels into having to upgrade the electricity from that white box space, which is basically made for, you know, a few plugs and maybe a few lights and (laughs) a few, you know, cell phone features or something like that. 
Um, a lot of times the electric panel needs to be upgraded or a separate service added. You can easily spend six figures just getting those things to the facility. Well, I'm sure that a laundromat is just that that's a that's a lot. That's almost uh industrial size things for just a small C2 commercial space, but it's what's needed to run the operation. So uh yeah. with that being said, I, I know you touched on it a little bit before about like adding value to the, the people's properties, but how do you add value to a laundromat business? I don't know if you want to break down with an existing and how can you add from that and then from a white box situation. Yeah, no, I mean, in a white box space, obviously, you know, the operator isn't really incentivized to, yeah. to build that out because there's, it's not, there's nothing there of value other than a box. And so you yeah. can put a laundromat anywhere. What's really very valuable for attracting someone like me to your property is if you acquire a property or own a property that already has that infrastructure in place, even if it's a older rundown dumpy laundromat. Yeah, we may need to tear out the bulkheads. We may need to move that drain that I talked about over five feet. Um, yeah. You know, but the reality is the service is still there. Um, yeah. I'm actually working on a project right now on a building that I purchased, and it used to have a small laundromat in it, and I'm going to gut it to the studs. But there's easily six figures in value above and beyond the value of the real estate to me, just in the infrastructure. Um, yeah. So as a tenant, when you approach a commercial property owner or a commercial property owner, approaches someone like me, there's, there's a significant amount of value associated with that space. And so if you were to go, you know, one of the business models in our industry, which is actually all five of my stores to, to date is taking over an existing rundown, you know, dumpy laundromat and then turning it into a modernized facility. And it's different with every project. There's typically a lot of value already there associated with the infrastructure. And a lot of times you can just pull the skin off of a bulkhead and reskin it and make it look really aesthetically pleasing. A lot of times you can just tear up a fairly inexpensive tile floor and put down another fairly inexpensive tile floor. And it really kind of makes the place pop. You know, you can add some paint to the walls and things like that. You can add LED lighting where there might've been, you know, T12 fluorescent lighting. Um, you can modernize the bathroom by putting in new toilets and things, you know, it's, you're not flipping a property, but I mean, you're, the infrastructure is there. That's where a lot of the value is. And then if you have an old rundown, dumpy laundromat in a commercial property, that's a community eyesore, meaning it kind of attracts the lessers in the neighborhood. A lot of the hangers on and the loiterers and um, a lot of laundromats are run what they call unattended, which means they don't have a staff in place. And so those bad guys kind of get a free for all. They can kind of hang out in there and, uh, you know, somebody might call the police, but as soon as the police leave, you know, you got a situation on your hand. When someone like me comes in and we invest heavily in improving the floor and improving the bathroom and a lot of times put attendance and staff in place and management. Obviously the golden goose with this is brand new equipment, you know, putting brand new commercial laundry equipment in that space. Um, this commercial laundry equipment, depending on the brand and everything is typically built to last in a laundromat environment, meaning it's taking a beating for a good 15 to 20 years. And there's a lot of equipment out there that's 25 or 30 years old. So when you make that investment as a laundromat owner, it's a significant capital investment um, but it can, as I mentioned with my business model, it can take something that was uh, just a cesspool in the community and attracted the worst of the community and kind of festered itself almost. Uh, you can turn it into something that's just a community asset and will really literally bring tears to your customers' eyes. Because one of the things a lot of people don't realize about a laundromat and a lot of the self-serve customers that are associated with it, 
is, you know, it's, it's not true that only poor people use laundromats. That's the big misconception, but that's not true at all. But roughly 30 to 40, 50% of our customer base is lower income. But the reality is they're, they're kind of hamstrung a lot of times by their budget. What I mean by that is lower income people, every penny matters. So they usually have less reliable vehicles or not have a vehicle at all. If they do have a vehicle or it is reliable, then their gas, their budget for gas is usually pretty low. And so if they drive 10, 15, 20 miles to go to a laundromat, that extra gallon or two of gas that they would use compared to if they went one right across the street is substantial. And so you're bringing a lot of value to the, to the community. And then the flip side of that is the reality is that a good portion of our society doesn't run their laundromats the way they should. There's a reason that we have that earned reputation of, uh, you know, the rundown dumpy laundromat with nobody in the back and so on and so forth. Um, and so when you do those things, you kind of stand out as sort of a beacon of light in your community and you start to, rather than attract the bad guys in the industry, you start to shine. So especially if you're in like a large shopping center or even a smaller shopping center, you're now attracting the better side of the industry or the better side of the community to that space. And we know, we all know how shopping centers and strip malls work. We all feed off of each other yeah. as far as traffic and things like that. So I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of from a big picture perspective, a lot of different ways you can bring value and there's, there's much more to it as well, but that's kind of the foundation of our business, if you, if you will. For sure. And, and I'll, and I'll echo that as far as the, on the commercial real estate end or the commercial real estate agent. end. a lot of the people that I deal with are in the retail side, industrial side, et cetera. And a lot of times they prefer to look at spaces that already are already built out for a particular use. So like a second gen space for a restaurant is going to be a lot cheaper to operate or get up and going than a complete new build out for a restaurant. And as you know, restaurants are notoriously super expensive to build out. Uh, Jeff has, has done many of those in the past and you know, you got to get your hoods, you got to get grease taps. There's all these different components of a restaurant that need to be incorporated before you can actually get up and going. And so if you can find a space that used to be a restaurant or used to be a laundromat, you know, that, that in and of itself can save you a significant amount of capital investment that you can now go deploy into executing your business model. And like you said, with the laundromat industry, like I think I would imagine you can correct me if I'm wrong, that people who get into the, the business thinking it's a passive business probably are the ones where, you know, those, those the laundromats start deteriorating over time because it's not getting the level of attention that's necessary in order to run an effective operation. So, yeah, trust me, there, there's a portion of our industry that sells that. You know, that the, the manufacturers, the distributors, a lot of times, and I, I don't think they have ulterior, you know, poor motives. Um, I think they actually believe that it's, it's a passive business and they don't operate laundromats and they don't listen to people that do, I guess. Um, but yeah, there's that, that's one of the big things that, you know, brings our industry the negative reputation that it has is one of the big things that's sold about how great laundromats are is that it is a passive business yeah, you got to build this and you got to build that and put equipment in it. And then it just runs itself. It's just a cash cow. You just make money for 20, 30, 40 years and you don't have to do anything. Well, I mean, if you do that for with a brand new laundromat for more than a year or two, it's going to be very obvious. <laughs> you know, it becomes very tired and very dirty, uh, starts to attract a bad element very quickly to it. But the reality is once that's what you've been attracted to and you've bought into that, and you've bought the laundromat or built the laundromat, and you, that's how you plan on running it, you're usually not in a position to get out of that situation, but you're also usually not very passionate about doing much about it. Um, and so it kind of becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy of a lot of people in our industry that I do think have good intentions, 
kind of misrepresent the industry and what it really truly is to its core. And that attracts people to the industry that think they're getting something that they're not. And then it just, like I said, becomes self-fulfilling because then they come in and that's how they function. That's how they operate. And they think that it's, that's acceptable. And that's, that's really what has, you know, I break our industry down into roughly three different types of operators. I always say roughly 50 to 60% of our industry operates at a very poor level. There's roughly 10 or 15% in the middle that operate at a very okay level. And then there's what I call the top of the industry, which is roughly 15 to 20% of our industry. They're like me. They're very passionate about serving their community. And what I'm really trying to do by getting my message out and uh, speaking to people like yourself is just explaining to the world that there is another side to the industry that not enough people talk about. And part of the reason they don't talk about it is because it's not easy. It's not passive. (laughs) It is flexible, but it's not passive. And so it's not always the easiest story to sell or pitch or get on a podcast to talk about the realities of what a laundromat, running a laundromat is really like. It's work. And if you're not up for that and you're looking for a passive investment, then this isn't the industry for you. Because us as an industry, there's a good portion of our industry that just aren't serving their communities properly. And I'm very passionate about this industry. I'm very appreciative for how it's changed my life and my family tree. Uh, But I also tend to be a pretty transparent, open and honest person. And so I want anyone that's considering the industry to just know the truth of what they're really getting involved in. And once they know that, hopefully they'll come into the industry and be attracted to the top of the industry and want to operate at that level. And the last thing I'll add on that is there's also a big misconception that the best way to make the most money in the laundromat industry is to operate at the bottom of the industry. And that's garbage. It's complete garbage. I've operated at the bottom of the industry because that's where I bought all my stores. I've operated in the middle as I started to turn them around and make them better. And I now consider myself one of the top operators in the industry. Um, And I can tell you that operating at the top of the industry, serving your community the right way, continuously reinvesting in your business uh, to make it better tomorrow than it was yesterday is by far the most profitable business model. And so, you know, that is something that you can sell. People do want to know what's the way, what's the best way to make the most money, even if it is for, for selfish reasons, that's fine. Because by default, if you run your laundromat at the top of the industry and you make a lot of money by default, you're also serving your community very well. Um, and I think that's something that us and as entrepreneurs in any business, any industry, I, I believe it's not only an obligation, but it's a responsibility to serve our communities. I mean, that's really what pure capitalism is at its core. It's not what a lot of people sell it and make it out to be. It's okay. You serve your community better than anyone else in your industry and you will be rewarded accordingly. The market will reward you for that. Um, and I don't think that's something that, that we in the entrepreneurial world talk about enough. And so that's something I'm pretty passionate about. For sure. That same logic applies to the commercial real estate space as well. I mean, absolutely. You, you know, the property owners that are taking care of their properties that are on <laughs> top of that are on yes. top of their tenants whenever there's an issue they, they are always full, always full. And they're always usually getting near the top, if not above market rents, because at the end of the day, the tenants want to be there. They talk to their business owner friends and it's like, yeah, this place is awesome. The landlord's been taking care of this property extremely well over the course of his tenure here. And people just naturally gravitate towards that building. And then you could tell the people who don't really take care of their properties. It's run down. It attracts you know, the wrong type of people. And all of a sudden, it's it just, like you said, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy of just it getting a reputation of being just a bad, bad piece of property. So I a hundred percent agree with you. And you know, that logic should apply to all business, not just Absolutely. laundromats, not just commercial real estate. It should apply to every single business out there. So that's awesome. 
So one thing I wanted to ask you is related to the acquisition process of a laundromat. So typically speaking, when you first started out, you said you bought a laundromat. Do you buy the actual business itself or is it something that you buy the building and then fit it with whatever you'd want to do? So could you elaborate a bit about how, what's the best way to find a laundromat opportunity, whether that's starting it by yourself or you acquire a business? The best way to find it is to look for the laws of supply and demand being tipped in your favor. If that means that there aren't any laundromats in a particular community that needs a laundromat, or maybe it has one or two, but it really needs four or five, I think that's the case in any business, right? Just look for the, for the, where the laws of supply and demand are tipped in your favor. And so the answer is it doesn't really matter. You know, the old adages of location, 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 it matters in the laundromat industry, just like it matters in real estate and any other game. Obviously, if you can find a rundown laundromat with that infrastructure and that value already in place, and you can roll into that and cosmetically fix it up and finance the equipment and do a lot of those things, that, that is typically the by far the best, uh, you know, you're, you're rolling into hypothetically a few hundred thousand dollars in value, even if it's in poor shape, just because it's physically there. So it's definitely more expensive, um, at least in the short term and the build out and things like that to put an existing, you know, a new laundromat in a white box space. So if you can find a rundown laundromat and the caveat is there's a lot of laundromats that were built 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that were built in poor locations. You're not looking for that. That's what I tell people. We're not, you know, we're not looking to hit a base hit here. We're looking to hit a home run or a grand slam. We're looking for the best locations. And so that's much more important that the laws of supply and demand are tipped in our favor and that you have a, a good or a great location within that community and you understand traffic flow and things like that. Because if you focus on those things, everything else will fall into place. There's a reason that, that commercial property is valued based on location and traffic patterns and rent is based on that. And, and the laundromat industry is no different. For whatever reason, 40 years ago, that was also sold to people that, oh, in the laundromat business, you don't need a great location. You know, they'll, they'll find you. And I understand the idea behind it. The theory behind it is we're a destination. You know, when people leave their homes, they have to make a conscious effort to put their laundry in the car and bring their soap and run by the bank and get money or whatever to come to a laundromat. And that's true. They've made an intentional decision when they left their house to go to a laundromat, but they didn't make the intentional decision to go to your laundromat. And that's where I think that got missold years ago by probably some well-intentional people. And a lot of laundromats across the country got built in CD locations. And all it takes is somebody coming in and making the investment in an A or a B location and you're toast. I mean, you, you just can't compete with that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's really the foundation of what you're looking at. Is focus on the location, parking, convenience, things like that. And then if you can find that value in the infrastructure, then you know that's usually when you're hitting a grand slam. So you found a great location uh, and you can, can, you're considering buying this particular laundromat. What, what would you say that the due diligence that we, we would need to go through to uh, consider buying the, the property or, and or just buying the business for the laundromat? Yeah, the due diligence phase is actually quite an art. Um, we have a yeah. lot of people that look at the laundromat industry that are from other industries that it's more of a science, it's more of a spreadsheet data kind of you know dive. And the reality is it's more of an art because you're looking at all the things I just discussed. And yeah. then you're also digging down into demographics, you know, what percentage of household renters versus owners um, are within a one, three, five mile radius. You're obviously looking at market differentiators in that business. If it is a turnkey business, 
um, then you're looking for what are the things that differentiate them from their competitors. And so you have to do the due diligence on the business you're buying, but also on the businesses that are competitors. That's why I say it's more of an art than a science. And then back to the supply and demand, you know, you're looking at the demographics and trying to make calculated decisions. And it's not a science, but you're trying to make calculated decisions based on, okay, how many laundromats, modernized laundromats can this community support, meaning a one, three, five mile radius. And once you can make that determination, okay, if there's 400,000 people in a five mile radius, I mean, there could be a laundromat on almost every corner that's modernized and well-run, and we probably still couldn't serve the community properly. But if you're in a town of 8,000 people and you're out in the middle, you know, you got to drive a half an hour to get to a grocery store, um, then that town may not even be able to support one modernized laundromat, but certainly not more than one. And so you're just like anything in life. You're looking for the, the laws of supply and demand to be tipped in your favor, where if you go in and do something different, and I'm a good example of that, the first store I acquired there was nine, you know, nine laundromats and they were basically all dumps. And so my thought was really pretty simple. I didn't even know that much about the business, but I was just like, well, if I go in and make this really nice and offer a value proposition that no one else in a 20 mile radius is doing, you know, I don't have to do a pro forma to tell me that should work out pretty well financially for me. And it did. So where a lot of people get in trouble is they really start to try to dive down too much on the data. They only focus on the revenue of the business. Um, and as an example, all four of the locations, while one of them I bought was run, was actually out of business. So it was one of these closed ones that we're talking about where I took over the infrastructure. The other three, all three of them, when I acquired them, were losing money. So, you know, the old adage of what's the value of a business? Oh, it's based on a two to five X of net operating income and all these things. And there's, that's, that has to go into the art. That's part of the formula but it's, it's not a science. You can't plug it into a spreadsheet and drill down. You got to really know the industry, understand community behavior, understand locations, parking, you know, understand layouts and floor plans of modernized laundromats, which are very different than the old laundromats of the old days. So you, you really have to just dig down into all those things. I could probably talk for three hours on that alone, <laughs> to be honest with you. I can only imagine. And, and not only that, but typically I'd imagine in these situations, you're dealing with mom and pop operators. And so in, in a lot of situations like that, I, I, I deal with it constantly on the commercial real estate side is when you're trying to verify some of these records and yeah. they're pulling out all these pieces of paper and they're like, oh, well, I think this goes with this. And you're just like, oh, my God, you're trying to compile all this data and create a picture when in reality, this, pro this financial picture probably isn't as clear as it should be, given the fact they've been operating the business, that particular property for years. And I'd imagine in your case, it's probably similar. So putting too much credibility into those numbers could also, I'd imagine, bite you, um, especially if they, and I don't know if this is the case, but I'd imagine sometimes they could intentionally fudge the numbers. I mean, I've, I've dealt with property Absolutely. owners that do that. And, and I'm just like, oh yeah, well, in reality, like I use some of these funds to pay for my phone. I use these, some of these funds to do this, et cetera. And they tell me as a commercial agent, but they wanted me to represent those numbers to the, the, the buying party and not mention any of the, that information. So it was kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting. So I don't know if that's something you've experienced in your, in your dealings as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a cash business and there's pros and there's cons to that. <laughs> uh, it is a very mom and pop antiquated business and that can be seen as a negative. And in some ways it is a negative, but it can also be seen as a positive depending on how you look at it and what your, what your intentions are. So yeah, that's why I say valuing an existing laundromat is more of an art than a science. But the truth of the matter is that this industry is very mom and pop, very antiquated. 
And there's a lot of people in this industry. These are good people, by the way. I'm not speaking negatively of them. These are good people, but they just don't really know how to run a business. They know how to run a job and they've bought a job and they've had a job for years, but they've never run a business, even though they've owned a laundromat for 25 years. And a lot of them don't even know what their business is worth. I would argue over 50% of our industry, no matter how long they've been operating a laundromat or even a chain of laundromats, they actually have no idea what it's worth because they've never taken the time to actually learn the industry and run a business. They've bought a job. And a quick example of that is, you know, when we talk about net operating income, okay, what's calculated in that? Because what happens a lot of times in our industry is a laundromat might be generating on paper $100,000 in net operating income. But then when you drill down on it, you say, okay, there's some attendance payroll in here and, you know, a few parts where they fix some machines. Well, who's fixing the machines? Well, I, the owner, I fix those machines. Okay, well, but you're not taking a salary. Like you're not paying yourself. Well, my, I, I mean, I get the profit. And so when you really drill down on it, it's like, okay, well, if I buy this business and you spend 30 hours a week repairing washers and dryers and toilets and doors, when I buy the business, are you going to keep doing that for me for free? Because if you are, then that's great. <laughs> but if you're not, then your net operating income is not properly, you know, this is not your net operating income. We have to calculate what it would cost me to have someone come in and do those things or hire someone to come in and do those things. And what is their fair market rate for their trade? And then we got to back that out of your operatings, you know, because you've never calculated for that. And that's the value of your business. And they will look at you like you have six heads. They have no idea what you're even talking about because they think they just work for free and all the profit is theirs. Well, until you go to sell, nobody's going to tell you, you can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's really not how you run a business. And it's certainly not how you calculate the net operating income. And I would argue a good 50-60% of our industry in the laundromat industry doesn't understand that. And it's even preached in the Facebook groups and the different forums that laundromat owners get on. It's even preached. Oh, that's common. I mean, you're, you know, if you buy this for a hundred, I mean, you're not willing to work 30 hours a week to make a hundred thousand dollars. Well, that's not, that's not the point. You know, the point of how we calculate net operating income is the important thing. And I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations with laundromat owners that wanted to sell their laundromats and they read online somewhere that their business was worth two to five X of net operating income. They didn't even know what net operating income was. So they had to look it up or somebody had to tell them. They said, oh, that's basically your profit. Okay. Well, my profit is this. Well, yeah, but you work full-time in the business and your wife works full-time in the business. I mean, that's two people working 40, 50 hours a week for free. So this place doesn't make 100,000 net operating income. That's not even remotely accurate. And it that conversation gets ugly really quickly because they, you know, people that have been running a business for 25 years don't want to be told that they don't know how to run that business. My point in all that is that when you're trying to drill down on the data and the numbers in a cash business and an antiquated business, it can be very, very difficult to really get to the bottom of it. But we, as potential owners, you know, we need to dig into what does that look like and make sure we're not overpaying. That's what it boils down to. Now, I have paid $80,000 for a laundromat that was a rundown dump and losing money. So once again, I was paying for value add. I was paying for infrastructure. I was paying for location. It's not all just about the net operating income. And that's where people get themselves in trouble when they obsess over the data. For sure. That's some great advice. So on that particular note, can you talk about maybe that first opportunity that you, you mentioned 
from what you mentioned, it was out of business. What were some of the things you did right off the bat to add value to the property? Or the, I'm sorry, not the property, but just the business itself so you could bring it up to that 20% threshold of being a top, top of line market. And maybe if you, could, if you could elaborate a little bit on that, I think that would be helpful. Sure. Yeah, it was actually the second one that, that was closed to the public. The first okay. one was open and, and was losing money, but it was open. So when we bought the first one, I mean, we had very limited funds. I was not a, not a wealthy person at all. I was very middle class with a three-week-old baby at home, a two-year-old at home, a wife who was a school teacher, and a 10-year-old at home. We were very middle class. We had saved up, like I said, over four or five years, a little seed money and put some of that down on the business. So we didn't have a lot of business. So the answer to the question is, I worked 90 to 100 hours a week for four to five years to build up that one store. And then as that one became profitable, I rolled that revenue into a second one and eventually a third one. And that's when I quit my job. But I did that through a lot of sweat equity, a lot of YouTubes, a lot of calling in favors from friends and family and relatives that would come over and give me free labor. And, you know, just because they loved me and my family. And the truth of the matter is, you know, I mean, that, that was the financial situation I was in. So we put everything we had in it. I mean, we maxed out our credit cards, but we, we knew we didn't have a lot of money and we knew we would have to borrow money for equipment. And so we would go in and paint and we would go in and cut out pieces of drywall to try to open up, but I'm not a contractor. So, you know, I might call a friend who actually has framed a basement before and they're not an expert, but they know more than me. And they would give me three or four hours and I would, you know, hey, I'll pay you back in a year or whatever. Um, or maybe they already owed me a favor type of thing. Uh, but yeah, my father-in-law, who's a very, very handy man, I, it would have to be in the hundreds, uh, plural, um, of hours that he came and helped me while my wife and my mother-in-law were at home with the babies, uh, just working late into the night, just, just to give me an extra hand because I was one guy. And a lot of this stuff, you just need an extra hand sometimes, but he was way more skilled than me. So he was able to come in and just, you know, just really support us. He didn't know laundromats. Uh, but you know, he knew how to finish drywall or, um, you know, most people can figure out how to paint, you know, might not be real pretty, but they can usually figure it out. We would tear out a toilet and, you know, my father-in-law knew how to install a new toilet and how to replace the flange and, uh, put a new door in. I didn't know any of this stuff. So I was just like, I'm the muscle. Like I'm just, <laughs> I'm here to help Chuck, which is his name. I, you know, I need to, I need to replace that toilet. I'll go buy a toilet. Could you please help me? Cause I have no idea what I'm doing. So it was a lot of that kind of stuff, which was not efficient at all. It was not an efficient use of my time, but I grew up pretty poor. One of the things I didn't tell you is I grew up in pretty extreme poverty as a little kid in Flint, Michigan. And we moved to Cincinnati, you know, when I was 10 or 11 years old, when you grow up poor, you kind of, you kind of learn that grit, you learn that scrappiness about yourself, or you, if you don't already have it, if it's not just ingrained in you, you pick it up real quickly. And so, you know, getting dirty. I mean, these are nasty places, quite frankly, it's disgusting. Um, I just, you know, put on long sleeves and a pair of gloves. It didn't phase me one bit. So there was just a lot of sweat equity is the quick answer to the question. And that's a unique perspective that you bring to your business. Like you said, I mean, being resourceful and particularly when you're first starting out, because you just don't have the disposable revenue to justify hiring all these different people to be able to perform a lot of the tasks. And right. you see a lot in the, in the investment space where people start off by like flipping a home and they do the home, the, they flip the property themselves. And then after that, they start getting an idea of how that operates and now they can replicate it, create systems. And now that's when you get the opportunity to hire other people to do the work. And now you can expect their, their work because you've done it before. So yeah, 
And that's really what happened with number three, number four, and we're currently building number five. Now I, I don't touch anything. You know, I inspect it on my GC. Um, I know what I'm looking at. I do the floor layouts myself. I mean, I, I have been doing this for 12 years. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's the old cliche, the school of hard knocks, right? I mean, you kind of get run through the meat grinder and if you come out the other side, a lot of times you're stronger and tougher for it, but you're certainly more educated. And so you can make better decisions. And like I mentioned, I took the revenue that that first store started to make after seven or eight months, it kind of started to be profitable. And within the first year, I acquired the second store that I actually acquired quote unquote for free. I just went in, signed the lease and they basically gave me everything. And 90% of it, I had to rip out and scrap. So it was, I had to undo a lot of things before I could even start building it up into something. But I at least had this revenue stream over here that was making a few thousand a month. And I would take that money and put it into, you know, the second laundromat. And then I, you know, a lot of sweat equity in the second one as well. A lot, a lot of sweat equity. Uh, maybe even more in the second one than in the first one, because I had no money. I'd spent everything on the first laundromat. Uh, but by the time we got to two, we kind of let that marinate for a couple of years, fixed them up and uh, continuing to you know, do some marketing and reinvesting and getting the word out in the community. And then that turned into number three, number four, and now number five. Because, you know, once we got two that were pretty profitable, I was still working my full-time job. And so we didn't touch the money. You know, I call it keeping my hand out of the cookie jar, you know, that delayed gratification. And we would just take all the money that those first two stores made and just let it marinate, either fix them up even nicer or just build up a little cash. And so when we got the three and four, now we had some credibility in the industry. We had an education, we had a track record, uh, we had profitable stores, we had some cash flow on a monthly basis, but we also had a decent nest egg of money that we had just left alone and not touched. And so with three, four, and certainly five, you know, we were in a better financial position where we were able to have people come in and do those things. And ironically, that's around the same time that I quit my full-time job was when we closed on number three. And so now I was there full-time, but I was able to hire tradespeople too. And that's really when our organization kind of went straight to the moon was that four or five years of delayed gratification and all that sweat equity and all these things. You know, people, people in finance talk about compounding interest, which is a powerful thing. Well, there's also such thing as just compounding good decisions, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and delayed gratification and things like that. And it just really started to pay off that long-term thinking I always had. If I just serve the community and focus on that, that the money will eventually follow. I mean, it eventually came. And to be clear, just so we re reiterate the point is that you, you made those sacrifices. You put in the hundred hours a week for multiple years and I'm sure during those time frames, you probably had doubt. You probably had, you know, oh. you're, you're, I mean, there's, there's a lot of emotions that go yeah. along with trying to just grind yourself through this particular period of time in your life. But I can only imagine, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but looking back now, I mean, I'm sure for you, it was hundred percent worth it because now your trajectory is straight up and it's, and it's going to continue to rise. And I'm really excited to see where you, you end up over the next five to 10 years. Cause I think your, your message that you're sharing is, is very valuable. So. Thank you. I definitely would agree with that for sure. I noticed on the revenue streams that you were talking, you know, you weren't, you weren't touching any of the money, keeping your hand out of the cookie jar per se. So my mind went to, well, you, you have taxes and they're trying to get into that cookie jar. So it, with the laundromat owning that, it, are there tax advantages to owning a laundromat? I'm just curious uh, on that because I know they have to have you know, <laughs> they're handing the cookie jar too. So. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the answer to that is they're enormous uh, yeah. because it's a capital intensive business. 
Yeah. Equipment is very expensive. I mean, I wasn't cash flowing this equipment. I mean, I was borrow, I was leveraging, I was borrowing, taking out loans yeah. to buy this equipment um, that the business would pay back out of cash flow. But there's there's ADA tax credits, which is the American Disabilities Act. Yeah. Um, you know, if you buy up to ten thousand dollars a year in commercial laundry equipment that is ADA compliant, you get a five thousand dollar tax credit in that year. Basically, what that means, if I buy $10,000 in commercial laundry equipment for my laundromat, I get $5,000 of it back. So the government pays for 50% of that up to 10K. And 10K don't get you far, trust me. Um, but the reality is, you know, you can you can accelerate depreciation and and all the 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 tax tax tricks that that accountants do with with a lot of industry, any capital intensive industry. Um, you know, obviously, when you buy the property, you have depreciation and, and things like that associated with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very capital intensive business. And so there are a lot of tax benefits to it. And so, you know, the one thing is, as I mentioned, the businesses weren't making a lot of money. So there wasn't a lot to offset there as far as taxes. Yeah. Um, but as I mentioned, we, we pretty much took everything the business made and invested it back in the business. We wouldn't necessarily do it that week or that month, but more often than not, we would do it in that tax year. And so if we made 25, 30,000 and I kept my hand off of it, that doesn't necessarily mean I wasn't investing it back in the business. I just mean I wasn't taking it home personally. So if I used 5,000 of that to fix up the bathroom or 20,000 of that to put a new tile floor in, that's still a tax write-off. And so, yeah, the first five or six years I was in the industry, we were spending so much money that we didn't pay any taxes, even on our personal income that we from our jobs, we got all that back. Because we were, I mean, we were investing heavily in a very capital intensive business and we didn't want anything from it. We just wanted to pay our bills, keep our lifestyle the same and just keep building, building, building. Uh, so it's a fantastic question. It's also one of the, the side of the industry that I talked about a minute ago that's really beneficial to operating at the top of the industry. Yeah. As the people at the bottom of the industry, they focus on not spending any money, which means they have no tax write-offs more yeah. often than not. People at the top of the industry are constantly reinvesting in their business, which means that in a capital intensive business, they constantly have tax write-offs. And whether you accelerate them to this year or defer them the next year or whatever you need to do based on your income, the reality is you have options, you have choices. So, you know, all business owners pay taxes. We all know that, uh, but you don't necessarily always pay them in a particular year. Um, You know, if you, if you build a million dollar laundromat, I can pretty much guarantee, I don't care how much money you made this year, you're probably not going to pay taxes this year. You'll pay it eventually. Yeah. <laughs> As you mentioned, they'll get their money. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, so it's, when I say I kept my hand out of the cookie jar, I wasn't just piling up piles and piles of cash. I was reinvesting yeah. it, if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. What would you say one of the most impactful books that you read and maybe redirect your life or uh, got you into the business or set you on the entrepreneur stream or what have you? Uh, Probably the book right above my head there, Rich Dad, yeah. Poor Dad. And I know it's a popular one and it's cliche and I wish I had a, a cooler answer. But the reality is that book I read shortly after it came out in the 90s. I was a young kid. I mean, I graduated from high school in 94. I'm not exactly sure what year it came out, but yeah. I think I read it in 95. Um, I was, you know, I was at a place where I was trying to figure out who I was as an adult. I always had that drive and that spirit of an entrepreneur, but I wasn't raised by entrepreneurs. I was raised very poor in poverty. And my parents were good, honest, hardworking people. And they dug themselves out of poverty over a lifetime. Um, But the reality is that, you know, I didn't know anybody that was a business owner or an entrepreneur. I just had this idea in my head. And so reading that book was really a a rubber stamp of approval that I wasn't crazy. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> because everybody my whole life had basically said, oh, that's too risky. You'll go bankrupt. Don't do that. All the stereotypes that people that don't understand business and entrepreneurship, um, you know, throw out there. And I do think they're well-meaning for the most part. These are people that care about me. So they wanted yeah. what was best for me, but they just didn't really know who I was to my core. And they didn't also take the time to really know me. I mean, from the day I was born, I would read anything I could get my hands on on business ownership and entrepreneurship. And, you know, that, that compounds. I mean, when you're 16, if you're reading business and finance books and self-help books and things like that, there's a lot of knowledge and education in those things. And especially when you do it, you know, one after another, after another, or you read the same book that's packed full of golden nuggets of information. If you read it, I mean, I've probably read Rich Dad Poor Dad five or six times in my life. Um, this is an example. Um, so yeah, if you make me pick one, that's going to be the one that definitely drove me forward. It kind of gave me that, that push that I needed to do something about it. Ironically, I didn't do it right away because as I mentioned, I didn't actually, you know, do much with that for another 10 years, but it really gave me that confirmation that I, it wasn't crazy, <laughs> which a lot of us entrepreneurs at some point in our life, we do think are, we're crazy. We might be crazy. <laughs> well, and, and, and like you said, I think, I think not having that someone nearby that you could look to, to offer you that validation that you were in fact an entrepreneur. And I feel like a lot of people can relate to that, that aren't entrepreneurs themselves. I mean, I didn't come from a, an environment where all my family was entrepreneurs and therefore the idea of steering away from the, the traditional track was very scary to people in my, in my close circle. So like my dad, He's very much about getting an education. After I got my bachelor's, he wanted me to go get my PhD. He came from an, like an educational background. And so the idea of me steering off, and at the time I, I, had a, I had a catering business in college and I took the leap of faith and tried to run with the catering business right out of college. Ultimately, it didn't succeed. But even that idea of me trying to do that was, was just blasphemous. I learned a ton of lessons from it. And I learned that I am, in fact, similar to you, someone who is entrepreneurial driven, uh, but having that validation from other people and whether that's through a book or whether that's surrounding yourself from other with other people who are entrepreneurs is is something that's beneficial. So I, I, I value the fact that you shared that that insight. Absolutely. Powerful, powerful stuff. And I mean, I could, you know, you only gave me one, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I could name, you know, I'm sure you guys could too. name many, many yeah. other books. Um, and that's actually why I wrote my book. I mean, I self-publishing and it's coming out October 1st, 2021. I hope it's okay if I. Of course. Yeah. No, I, I, I yeah. plan on, I plan on getting a copy myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I got a book. It's, it's under my laundromat millionaire brand. That's the name of the book is laundromat millionaire. And that's coming out. It's in publication right now. Um, and so it'll be coming out, out October 1st, 2021, depending on when you're watching this. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. Um, you know, most people that don't write books don't know this, but there is an insane amount of work into writing a book. It's a labor of love that will almost guaranteed uh, never pay you back for your time, <laughs> even if it becomes a bestseller, it, it, which I have, I'm under no illusion that it will. Uh, but, you know, the reason I did it is I've learned so much from books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And um, I feel like I have a story inside me that I want to tell that's unique and different and has brings value to the world and the business community and the entrepreneurial community. And so that's why I've, you know, invested, you know, a lot of money and a lot, years of my time, literally. Um, in writing that book and sharing that story and make sure it's crafted in a very way that I can be very intentional about it is because I'm ultimately, I'm just insanely grateful for books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And there's many, many others. That's just, that's just the one that pops right to top of mind. Uh, but there's many others. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for the community and the people that have blazed 
the trail for entrepreneurs like us in the past to be where we are today and learn the things we've learned. And I just, you know, it's the old pay it forward kind of mentality. You know, I don't have a college degree. I went to high school, a very average high school, graduated in the top third of my class, barely graduated basically, but you won't outwork me. You won't outgrip me. <laughs> That's, yeah. you know, what people say, what's your superpower? A lot of people have more than one. Mine is, I just won't quit. That's it. That's all I got. I don't have anything else. <laughs> but that's, that's uh, but I think that's a valuable. message a lot of people need to hear, you know? And so that's why, I, that's why I'm a big fan of, you know, telling my story in a very transparent way. Is I, think, I think way too often us entrepreneurs and business owners, we tell the Hollywood side of the stories, meaning the good, you know, and the sexy yeah. and the Ferraris and the Corvettes and all this stuff and, and the, the empires of commercial property or laundromats or whatever and all the money we're making now. And obviously my laundromat millionaire brand, you know, is designed to get people's attention for sure. But at the same time, I want to, I want to be different and I want to tell the, the good, bad, and the ugly of what an entrepreneur is like so that people get involved. They know what you're getting involved in. Um, so that's something I'm pretty passionate about. And I think, I think that we need, we in the entrepreneurial world need to do more of that. hundred percent. No. And I, th- I think your story, uh, the message you share in particular, showing the good, the bad, the ugly, and kind of creating the trail for people that want to aspire to something similar to you, I think you're going to inspire a lot of people with it. So I'm really excited to get my copy. I'll, I will be buying your book and I'll read it and I'll provide you some feedback. But so to round out the interview, one of the things we usually do is we ask our speakers to contribute a item to the CRE treasure chest. Essentially what the CRE treasure chest is, is a repository of resources that we make available to all our listeners for free uh, that teaches them about the many facets of commercial real estate. And in particular right now, since we're referencing laundromats. Uh, we just wanted to know what you had to offer for the uh, the audience today. Yeah. So I have a document that I'll provide for you. It's a PDF and I'm, I'm becoming fairly well known, at least in my industry, uh, for being so brash as to say that the laundromat business, I believe, is the best small business in America. And I say it in our industry and people that are in the industry that don't believe it's, the, you know, that haven't had a good experience. Uh, they kind of laugh at snicker. The people at the top of the industry actually understand the message but it's really about getting that message outside of our industry. Um, and so it just touches on it in some, you know, really quick bullet points for them. Um, but, you know, if, if people are interested in laundromats, I think it'll cut the fat a little bit and get, get kind of the meat and potatoes of why I believe that laundromats are the best small business in America. Um, so hopefully it'll help your audience. I really appreciate that. And I know a lot yeah. of our audience members who are interested in learning more about the industry and potentially even getting into the industry will gain some value from it. So we really do appreciate that, Dave. I, I know uh, I would like to talk to you more uh, sometime and I'm sure other people listening would like to contact you. So how can we direct them to contact you? Which stream would you like to? Yeah. So I have to? a website. Okay. I do laundromat coaching services. Um, like I said, I'm writing a book. I have a podcast under the laundromat millionaire brand called laundromat millionaire business podcast. It's available on all the platforms and I'm a C-suite contributor. So I don't know if you're aware of the C-suite network, but it's on their radio station and their TV station. Uh, They can find me on YouTube. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Uh, But ultimately the best way to reach me is usually through my website, which is just laundromatmillionaire.com. And I do offer a free 20 minute consultation to anyone. It's kind of my way of giving back to the industry. And I always tell people 20 minutes isn't much time. So keep in mind, (laughs) we're not going to be able to chat for hours. Uh, but it's just my way of kind of giving back to the industry and the entrepreneurial community. That's usually the best way to, to start out, have that 20-minute conversation. We can usually hit a bullet point or two in pretty pretty decent depth um, and give you an idea of if it's something you want to continue to pursue or not. And that's something that I offer for free. 
So they can sign up. They can request that right through my website, laundromatmillionaire.com. We'll, inclu- we'll include all that information in the description below as well. So for those of you guys who want to reach out to Dave, feel free to do so. He's a great guy, as you can tell. Um, and I'm sure you'll gain some value from having a conversation with him. So Dave, we just want to thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to be able to come to us and, and, and tell us a little bit more about the laundromat business and just the industry as a whole. I think, I think the audience got a ton of value from it. I know I did, and I know I can probably speak for Jeff as well to say that he got yeah. some value from it as well. So first off, uh, before we, we hop off, I just wanted to reach out to our audience and, and let them know if you could leave us a five-star review. We really do appreciate all the support that you guys have been providing uh, on the various different mediums that we do provide this podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, feel free to like and subscribe to the channel. It really helps the YouTube algorithm and ensures more and more people can hear this message related to commercial real estate. So thank you so much, Dave, as we always say, and we'll see you guys next time.